0: The following is a message by Dr. John Fesco from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Let's uh, open our Bibles to the prophet Haggai prophet Haggai. And for our visiting uh, prospective students here, my name is John Fesco. I'm the academic dean, which means I put a lot of paper in a lot of different boxes. Um, But we are continuing the uh, faculty sermon series uh, or chapel series on the uh, post-exilic prophets, the post-exilic prophets. So if you would, let's turn our Bibles to the prophet of Haggai. And I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 10 of chapter, I'm sorry, 1 through 9 of chapter 2. So Haggai chapter 2, Beginning in verse one, let's give attention to the reading of God's word. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Trying to understand the concept of exile, I think, can be very difficult because most of us uh, have never really had that kind of experience. I think the closest thing that I could potentially come to, uh, uh, we could go back to 1999. In 1999, I don't do this very often, but on one day in the spring, I decided to take the morning off from work. I don't like doing that typically, unless I'm ill. And I wasn't ill on this day, but I decided I'm taking the morning off. I went and bought a movie theater ticket, and I sat down in the movie theater, and I waited for the movie to get started. And as the 20th Century Fox uh, logo had appeared on the screen, and then, in the green, sparkly letters, Lucasfilm Limited appeared on the screen. Um, and then the the, the uh, John Williams theme song to Star Wars started up, and the scroll began, and it said Star Wars Episode One. It had been twenty two years twenty two years since I first sat in a theater in downtown San Francisco with my dad and my brother. I was seven years old when I first saw. The in first installment of Star Wars. I think that's the closest thing I can come to exile. Um, why? How in, this, how in How in the world is it possible to say that this is the closest thing that I could come to exile? Well, because I had waited for 22 years to see what else would happen in the story. Um, I wanted to know what was going to happen. I wanted to know, you know, how did Darth Vader come about? Um... And what was funny is that after I got back from the movie, I emailed a number of my friends. And a number of my friends had also done you know, similar things. They would played hooky and gone to see this movie. And a number of them were gravely disappointed you know, for a number of reasons of which I will not go into. And part of me thought, well, maybe it had to do with the fact that when you first saw it, you were about seven years old, and when you're 29 years old, there's, you know, you're looking at it as the, through the eyes of an adult rather than through the eyes of a child. Now, maybe this says something about my psychology in that I liked it, so I thought, well, maybe I'm just a seven-year-old at heart. I don't know. You see, that's something. That's just a fragment, a sliver, I think, of what's going on here in the prophet Haggai, particularly in the second chapter. You see, the people of Israel had been taken away into captivity, either by the Assyrians or the Babylonians, and that they had lived in exile for 66 years. 66 years. It's uh, three times 22 you know, at least in comparison with my own experience. But unlike having some memory of an early childhood experience, something that was joyful to me, the Israelites had a very different experience. You see, they had been separated from the land for 66 years. And it's not just simply a question of, gee, I want to get back home, although I'm sure that that fed into it, but rather it's the idea that they had been separated from the presence of God on earth for 66 years. You see, because in Israel, the center of their life was ultimately supposed to be the temple of God, the dwelling place of God on earth. So for the Israelites to be separated physically from their Lord, from their covenant Lord for 66 years, would be somewhat traumatic and difficult for the faithful Israelite. And so they were brought back into the land. And at first, the prophet Haggai, and you see this in the first chapter, he had to prod them a little bit. They were a bit concerned more so with building their own homes when they were uh, with uh, building the house of the Lord, with building the temple. And so uh, the prophet, uh, through the instigation of the Lord, was able to uh, encourage them to expend their efforts and their energies in building the house of the Lord. And so here we come upon the narrative in the second chapter, of the prophet Haggai. And in terms of verse 1, we're, we're, we're given the information that it was the seventh month, the 21st day uh, in the second year. And that may not seem all that important, but we should know from Israel's past that they were ultimately, they were celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. In other words, they were remembering their past through this divinely ordained festival that the Lord had given to his people on the heels of the exodus. I mean, think of it, if you will, in terms of our own celebration. Say it was the 4th of July. That's the closest thing, I think, that we have in our own uh, culture. What they were celebrating is God's miraculous deliverance uh, from Egypt. And so they were celebrating this. But as they were celebrating, so you can imagine, they had been separated from the land for some 66 years. They were celebrating. They had completed uh, rebuilding the temple. And I'm sure some of the younger people were probably thinking, you know what? We feel pretty good about ourselves. Uh, Look, we've rebuilt the temple. We've done what the Lord has called us to do. But there were some of the older people that were there who looked upon the tabernacle with a bit discouragement, a bit of sadness, in a much greater way than the sadness, perhaps, that some of my friends had done when they had gone back to the movies to see this series. See, it wasn't just childhood disappointment, but rather, they knew the former glory of the Solomonic Temple. They knew because they had seen it with their own eyes. They had seen it with their own eyes as younger men and women... They had seen the tabernacle, in, I mean, the temple in all of its glory. They undoubtedly knew of the precious metals that had gone into it. They had seen the high priest uh, decked in his uh, priestly robe with the, uh, the precious stones, the gold filigree. They had seen the temple in all of its glory. Not only that, but in terms of the day of dedication when Solomon had dedicated the temple, they undoubtedly remembered that the priests we were not able to enter into the temple because the glory of the Lord filled the entire tabernacle so, or the temple so much so that it drove the priests out. And you think about it also in these terms, that in first, the first king's narrative in the, de- in the uh, dedication of the, ta- the temple, Solomon uh, slaughtered uh, some uh, 22,000 beasts in sacrifice. I mean, you talk about making a significant impact upon the memory of someone, and then, as they look upon the tavern or the, the temple that they have rebuilt, the prophet says, "Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes?" In one sense, I think he 's appealing to the older people in the the, uh, the crowd, say, don't you remember how it used to be? But also, too, I can't help but think that maybe in a pastoral way, he's taking some salt and maybe pouring it in a slightly open wound. In other words, he doesn't want the younger generation to think that their future is wrapped up in what they have just completed. He doesn't want them to think that this is all there is. It's funny, so often in this life, and you see this at least on smaller scale, in the life of the church, in the life of individual Christians, and even in the life of the unbelieving uh, world, where people will trade their heavenly inheritance and the blessings of the covenant for the smallest and seemingly most insignificant of things. People would rather have wealth than eternal life. Uh, People would rather have... uh, a fling rather than fidelity. And you see them trading uh, their covenantal inheritance for a bowl of lentil soup, if you will. And so I think that the prophet was addressing that and he says, no, look, I mean, don't you remember how glorious it was? So in that sense, I think he was showing the people that this was what a shack In many ways, he was saying, this is pathetic. Now, he wasn't doing this so that he could somehow embarrass them. He wasn't doing this uh, to say, boy, remember the good old days? That's when it was really good. No, he was rather going to the future through the past. Going to the future through the past. He says in verses 4 and 5, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, Davidic descendant, governor, the kingly figure. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, descendant of Aaron, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work! For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. He tells them, no, be of good courage. Be of faith. Be of hope. Have hope. In fact, I can't help but think that in the context when he says be strong, that he's invoking those words that, um, uh, that uh, the Lord th- through Moses spoke to Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Don't fear. But also, too, he's reminding the people, do you remember how I delivered you from the Egyptians? Do you remember how I brought you through the Red Sea? Do you remember how I placed my Holy Spirit in your midst, whether through the pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud? Well, just as I was with you then, I am with you now. In other words, don't let the circumstances, as bleak as they might appear, lead you to believe that I have somehow forsaken or abandoned you. So he brings them to the past, but he doesn't bring them to the past to remember the days of old. He's not remembering the good old days. So often people can think, well, if it could only be as good as it used to be. We're constantly living in the past. I remember having a number of discussions with people in my congregation over the years. And there was a dear uh, gentleman in my congregation who said, things were just different. They were just better back then when I was a child. Things weren't as awful as they used to be. And I think it was as a little bit of selective memory. He grew up around in the 30s. And I also remember that during the 30s, we had one of the worst crime waves in the history <laughs> of the country. You had uh, you know, uh, stellar figures like uh, Machine Gun Kelly and all of those names of old, where they would go in and machine gun uh, police officers. And I think, well, you know, as bad as it is now, I don't think we necessarily have it that bad. He had a selective memory. That's not what Haggai's doing. He's not saying go back to the past and just glory in the past. He's saying, no, remember... What God has done in the past, he was with us in the past, he is with us now, and he will bring us to the goal that he has in mind. Well, what was that goal? Verses 6 and following, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more... you think you remember the Solomonic temple and how great it was and you certainly remember how great it was over this small shack? You ain't seen nothing yet. That's what he's saying. He's saying that I'll shake the nations. Again, I think invoking some of the imagery of the Exodus narrative in that what was it that the people used uh, to build the tabernacle but the gold of Egypt? The gold of the Gentiles, if you will. And so he's saying once again, I'm going to shake the nations, and I'm going to bring in their gold, their silver, and I'm going to rebuild this house. Because in the end, he says it's not theirs; it's mine. It's my gold. It's my silver. But then he also says, he says, if you think the glory of the Solomonic temple was something, no, the glory of this latter house will far surpass the glory of the temple, even in its heyday, in its most magnificent and glorious manifestation. And he says, and I'm going to give you peace. Now, I think there, again, given the fact that the narrative has reflected so much upon the Pentateuch at this point, I think that there you should think, for example, of the Aaronic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord uh, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace. In other words, to be in God's presence for God's people was to bring peace. And so what he's saying is don't look upon your present circumstances and think that God has somehow abandoned you. No, he will continue to be with you. He will rebuild this house and his presence will remain in your midst. And because his presence will remain in your midst, he will give you peace. So when would these things occur? Well, though many have believed that a number of prophecies such as this one or say, for example, Ezekiel's temple vision in the uh, closing portions of his book um, mean that we're supposed to await the construction of another brick and mortar building, I don't think that that's the case. I've often said, and it perhaps shocks people, but I'm glad that Dome of the Rock is built Upon the Temple Mount. In other words, I'm glad that there's a Muslim holy site on top of Israel's site, where the temple used to sit. Why? I guess I could be wrong about this and you know watch if all of a sudden left behind is true, and then I will be very embarrassed. But I can't help but thinking that what God has done with through that providence is to say, "Never again here on this site. Never again here on this site. So I'm glad, from a certain point of view. In other words, I'm not saying that we should promote Islam, of course. But I'm glad that Dome of the Rock is there. Why? Because the Lord has begun to build his house, and it is not made out of brick and stone, but it is made out of you. It is made out of you. You founded and built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. I never knew what a cornerstone was until I was watching the Home Network. I have various interests, so I have to keep that in mind. And uh, I was watching the Home Network and they were showing how to build uh, a barbecue grill out of brick. And uh, I thought, oh, this is interesting. Let me see what they're talking about. And they talked about it, and they started talking about the cornerstone brick. And I didn't know what a cornerstone was. I mean, I think in our setting, we think the cornerstone is the last piece. It's the little plaque that goes in there that says, this building is dedicated to. And it's not. The cornerstone is the one stone that ensures that the whole building is square in all three dimensions, if that cornerstone is off, then the building could be off on the depth, it could be off on its width, or it could be off on its height, and then you have a bad building. But Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. In other words, what Paul is saying is he is the stone that ensures that the house grows properly. We in a lot from the home network. But think, for example, of John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh, and the Greek says there, and tabernacled, not simply dwelt, but tabernacled among us. You could say, the word became flesh and pitched his tent in our midst. Remember when God said that he would remain amidst, in the midst of his people and that he would uh, bring them peace? Well, if the temple is the presence of God in the midst of his people, where the chief manifestation of God's presence in the midst of his people is not done in a building, but rather it is done through the Lord Jesus Christ as he inhabits his people by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus said in John 2.19, Destroy this temple, and I will in three days raise it up. Why? Colossians 2 9, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so, beloved, this is why we can say that the glory of the latter temple would far surpass the glory of even the Solomonic temple. Why? Because Haggai was not talking about a building out of brick and mortar, but rather in Christ. God the Father has literally begun to shake the nations. And I would say most of us here are evidence of that in the sense that I suspect that there are not many of us here of Jewish descent. In other words, the prophecy that Haggai gave utterance to has begun to be inaugurated with the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ as the Gentiles are now pouring in to the house of God. And they are now being constituted as that final dwelling place of God. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. When you think of how narrowly focused the scope of the redemptive knowledge of God was in the world. Reduced to that small sliver of real estate in the Middle East. And that since Christ has come, how we can literally say that the sun does not set on the people of God. The sun does not set on the temple because the temple expands throughout the entire earth. That is far more glorious than any one physical building could ever be. Beloved, we should recognize that as glorious as that is, That we could also say, though, that the relevance of Haggai's prophecy has not yet been fully exhausted. You see, I suspect that we can perceive the glory of the expanse of the gospel. And we can relish the idea that the gospel has gone forth into so many different nations. I think that when if it were the apostle Paul to look out upon how far and wide the gospel has spread that Paul would weep tears of joy knowing that the gospel has gone forth into China into India into the Middle East into the United States to all over the world but yet I can't help but think that as we reflect upon this inaugurated promise that we look out upon the church and maybe we are given a certain sense of dis-ease. Dis- in other words, we, we think, well, yes, it's glorious, but maybe we're kind of like Haggai's people and that we look out upon that shack and we think, it's not as glorious as I had hoped. In other words, perhaps the words of the hymn that we sung earlier My apologies to Dr. Godfrey for not singing a psalm, but I thought this hymn would work too. Um, Though with a scornful wonder we see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. In other words, we look out upon the church and we see it distressed. Distressed we think, well, Lord, isn't there more? We can look out upon the church and we know that it suffers, whether because of serious illness or perhaps due to tragedy. When tragedy strikes, unbelievers are not the only ones that are affected. Believers are often swept up in those events. Or perhaps trial and persecution. Again, I can't help but wonder if we, like those Israelites that surrounded the temple, at times are struck with a sense of perhaps sadness as we look out upon the church. But beloved, we should recognize that the words of Haggai's prophecy should continue to echo in our hearts. Because they are not yet finished. It's the author of Hebrews who draws upon these very words. And he says in the 12th chapter, verses 22 and following, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape who refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, invoking the Sinai covenant, at that time his voice shook the earth. But now, notice the present tense, but now he has promised, yet once more, from the words of Haggai, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God as a consuming fire. Beloved, the Lord is not yet done building his temple. We may look out upon the church and be distressed by what we see, but we should take hope because of what the author of Hebrews says. As He said, yet more, and once in a little while, I will shake the heavens and earth, and he will Take away, he will clear away everything that does not belong. And the only thing that will be left standing is the church of Jesus Christ. Or in terms that Paul uses, again, notice the language of the tabernacle and the the temple that he uses. Is that on the consummation of the last day, he says that we will put off the tent of our bodies. And we will instead be further clothed in a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens or a heavenly dwelling. So beloved, this means that the words of the prophecy of Haggai still should echo in our hearts and give us courage even in the face of apparent setbacks. Because in the end we know, as John says in the 21st chapter of Revelation, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So, beloved, rejoice that God has begun to shake the nations and that he is building his temple founded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. Rejoice that you as living stones have been incorporated into this temple, but do not be distraught at the present low appearance or the mean appearance of uh, God's temple. Rather, cast your gaze heavenward to the ascended Christ with the eyes of faith. Look not upon the church with the eyes of your flesh, but rather look upon the eyes with the, with the eyes of faith. Look upon the church with the eyes of faith and let the words of the prophet resonate in your heart. And I will shake the nation so that, well, the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your prophetic word for it pierces the darkness, pierces the darkness of unbelief, it lifts away the clouds of doubt, and assures us that your word is faithful and true, and that all of your promises are yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice, O Lord, that you have begun to shake the nations, bringing forth people who bring their wealth and treasures to your house, and that you are building it even now, We pray, O Lord, that we as living stones would be faithful to the calling to which you have given us. But we also pray, O Lord, that in the midst of the struggles that we see scattered throughout your church, that you would not allow doubts or fears to overwhelm us. But rather that you would give us the faith to look continually to you, O Lord, as you are ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father, bringing all of the nations in subjection to your reign and rule, making your enemies your footstool. We pray, O Lord, in this way that you would fill our hearts with hope, knowing that on the last day you will remove everything that is temporal, everything that offends, everything that does not belong, and that the only thing that shall remain is that glorious, temple of the lord the lord dwelling in the midst of his people as well as even in his people through the power and presence of your holy spirit maranatha come quickly lord jesus we pray but until that time fill our hearts with faith and hope and enable us obediently to respond to your word we pray and ask all of these things in christ's name